turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, a message entitled, All Things Summed Up in Christ. And I say up front, this is a multi-part message. We won't, we won't uh, cover everything in these verses today. We'll pick some things up next week. As you're turning there, I just want to share with you uh, just some of the uh, excitement and some of the fruit uh, of my own personal study and time with the Lord this week. This week, I turned uh, my attention to one passage for uh, today was the seventh day. And it's this passage. And you don't have to turn there. It's Psalm 16. God says through David's pen, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, David saying this, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I mean, do you meditate on that fact very often? That outside of Jesus Christ, you have nothing good. I have nothing good. He is the good. He is the magnificence. He is the beauty. If there's anything beautiful in my life, it's Christ. It's not me. It's Him. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's God's answer, I think, to David. This is interchangeably happening. I think David is is writing what God says about those who take refuge in God. They're my delight. The people are my delight. God sings over His people. I mean, I spend... You need to spend days and weeks, and I need to spend days and weeks thinking about God singing over us. And and that we are His delight. I mean, there's if you want something to light the fuse in your life, excite you, it's not some cool story of example that some preacher can tell you. It's that God delights in you, and He pours out His blessing over you, and He sings over you. I mean, there's nothing greater than that. The Lord, he says, is my chosen portion and my cup. God holds my lot. God holds my lot. I don't hold the destiny in my hands and the world doesn't hold the destiny in its hands. God holds my destiny in His hand and He is my cup. He is my portion. Is that what you would say today? I mean, is that really what? I mean, I know we would mouth it. And we would say it because it's the right thing to say, but is He your portion? Or is your marriage your portion? Or are your children your portion? Or is your job your portion? Or is your, your, your retirement your portion? What is your portion? What is your sustaining force in your life? Is it Christ? He will never fail. Everything else fails. He never fails. Some of you have reached the end of your rope, literally. You would never tell us that, but you've told Him that in prayer. And I'm telling you, He is your portion. If He's not your portion, you're going to fail. But if you have Him as a portion, He will never fail. Therefore, you will never fail. And then, just quickly, in my last meditation this morning, I spent um, a lot of time just thinking about this verse. Verse 11, it is the crux and the the impetus of my life. This is it. This is, you ask me for my life verse, I would tell you Psalm 16, verse 11. This is it. You have shown me the path of life. His name is Jesus, by the way. That's why Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way. He's saying, I'm the path. 
I am the path. God has showed you the path to Him. It's me. The path is a person. His name is Jesus. In your presence, Christ, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. I have come that my people might have joy and that joy more abundant. Their cup overflows. The spring springs forth from their heart and it is unceasing. It's like a river. It never stops. It never fails. That's what he's saying. There, in your presence there is abundance of joy. When you think of your relationship with Christ, saved person, is the first thing off your lips joy? Or is it duty? Is it, well, I, I'm a Christian and I have to read my Bible and I have to go to church and I have to sing songs and I have to pray and I have to be a good husband and I have to and I have to and I have to. Then what God would say is keep your have to. Because I don't need you to serve me with your hands. I have no need of your service. God is not impotent in need of us. What God wants, what God wants is human beings who are completely mesmerized by His beauty and His glory, by His Spirit coming before Him and pouring out praise and worship and joy from their inner man. That's what He wants. That's what He desires. That's what He will have. If you don't say, my joy is Christ, you are not a believer. I don't back up from that statement. If your life is about duty unto Christ, you are not Christ. I don't care how much you want to fool yourself to believe you are. I've been in church. I'm a good person. I know Scripture. I pray. I lead my family. I do good things. Hogwash. If He's not your joy, you're not a Christian. In your presence, there's joy evermore. And at your right hand, God, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand. Jesus wasn't some new invention in the New Testament. He's all over the Psalms. He's all over the prophets. He's all over the law. He's all over the Old Testament. At your right hand is seated pleasures. 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 Christianity is about pleasure. Listen. If Christianity for you is about duty, if Christianity for you is about rules, if Christianity for you is about what you've done good, what you've done bad, does it measure up? Am I good enough? You're not a Christian. Christianity is about pleasure. Christianity is about Christian. I'm going to say it. It got one of my favorite men of all time in trouble. Christianity is Christian hedonism. If you're not a hedonist to the glory of God, you are not His. We must become, by His grace, through His Spirit, people who love pleasure. Every human being, you and me included, seeks pleasure. All of us. Some of you sought it last night and you're drug in this place by guilt, by duty, whatever it is. And you found it at the bottom of a bottle. You found it in a bed. You found it on a street corner. You found it in your family. You found it in your goodness. You found your pleasure last night in something, but not Christ. And I'm telling you, you can't deny pleasure. Your desire for pleasure is God-given. It needs to be placed in Christ. 
Oh, the joy that never ceases when Christ is your pleasure. And, and the Christian church kind of looks at you dead like, I, no, I don't, that's not, I'm not sure. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, that's the pre-sermon. It has nothing to do with what I want to preach on. That's just an overflow. I can't, sometimes I can't hold it all in. You, you sit in front of God's presence, in His Word, meditating on His Son, and you think, I've I got to tell somebody this. Listen, I want you to be encouraged. God wants you to seek your pleasure. God is a pleasure-seeking God. Christians should be all about their joy. Because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. The pleasure known and contained in Christ is forevermore. I'm not going to tell you you can't find pleasure in this world. You can. But when you get to the end of that event, you will have to have a bigger event. Whatever the event is. Whatever it is. If your pleasure comes from anything outside of Christ, you have to have bigger and better. Bigger and better. Bigger and better. Listen, there's no bigger and better. He's it. And that's what our passage says, really, in Ephesians. Paul's all about this concept. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, we start, we'll start in verse 7, even though I preached that for a couple of weeks and now I don't want to return there, but I, it's, the full, it's the full thought here. In Christ we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of our, of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He, these are, this is our text, which He lavished, poured out, abundantly poured out. Some might even say he foolishly spent himself. He prodigalized himself. That's what we're talking about. A prodigal is one who spends everything. God lavished, spent everything on us in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of God's will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things in earth, all things summed up in Christ. That's the message title. I'm not very creative. I just take what's in the Bible, put it in words and say it. The whole point of this is not to entertain you in the least. It is to help you understand what we just read. That's what I hope when you walk out and say, I got that. I, I better understand it. And, and let's remember our context. We're in the middle of the longest sentence here. The long sentence, the long prayer, the eulogy, the blessing from Paul's mouth to the people of Ephesus about their God. God, God is blessed above all things. Praise Him because He is blessed above all things. That's what Paul said at the beginning. And here are the things which He has blessed us with in Christ. And there's seven of them at least, if not more. And then He begins to go through the, the passage. Election is a blessing from God. Predestination is a blessing from God. Adoption is a blessing from God. 
redemption, forgiveness. You see the blessings. And here's two that you might not have seen when I read it because of the way the sentence in the English is translated. Wisdom and insight are a blessing from God. That's not how God did something wise and insightfully. That's part of what God blessed us with was wisdom and insight. You didn't come to Christ because you're smarter than the guy sitting next to you. You came to Christ because God graciously gave you understanding of the gospel and wisdom to apply what you understand by His grace for His glory. And so wisdom and insight are a blessing. He made known to us the mystery of His will. We're going to hang out there today. That, that's really, that might be the very end of the sermon, is the wisdom and insight which He has given us. And that brings about the revelation of the mystery of the will of God. So let's get to it. The first point here is this. We have been blessed with spiritual wisdom and insight, understanding from God. Wisdom is used by Paul most of the time, to describe the spiritual act of understanding. Now, I know that with the proverbial way we talk about wisdom, proverbial, uh, worldly, wise way we talk about it, is this. We say that person is wise. What we mean by that is he invests his money well. Right? He's learned the lessons of life and he does that thing well. A carpenter, that's a wise carpenter. What does that mean? He understands the trade of being a carpenter, cutting wood, measuring geometry, placing it up, putting it together. He is wise as a carpenter. He sees problems coming and he then addresses them, right? And he does it well. That's not really what Paul's talking about most of the time when he uses the word wisdom. What Paul's talking about is spiritual gift of wisdom. The spiritual gift of wisdom, not the physical reality that some of us have. Some of you are wise, and you've heard the statement, wise beyond your years. Some of you young folks are. The Scriptures often tell us that the gray-headed among you are wise. Right? Now, that's not always talking about what I'm talking about. So let's set that. that that's a great thing. It is a true thing. But let's set it aside because the definition we have before us, I think we'll see it in Paul's writing. The way Paul uses it is to talk about a spiritual wisdom. Look what it says in the text in verse 8. He lavished upon us wisdom and insight. He, he lavished it on us. He poured it out on us. Without reserve, God gave us wisdom. God gave us understanding. And aren't you glad He did? Hold your place in Ephesians and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul uses the word wisdom in this text over and over and over. And I think it will give the right definition for us. I think it will help us better understand what he means in Ephesians 1. So I just want to let the Bible explain the Bible. Okay, let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly, is foolish to those who are dying. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now he's not talking about carpentry, parenting, neither is he talking about uh, the wisdom of financial gurus investing money. What is, God, what is Paul talking about in this quote? The wisdom 
of the world which he is addressing is the wisdom of how to be right with God. The world has an idea and a philosophy on being right with God. Even atheists, even atheists have a belief about what is wise in regard to spiritual things. And their opinion is that all spiritual things are folly. So live your life. But that's still an opinion. That's still a wisdom. That's still indirectly a belief in God. Try this one on for size. You can't deny what you don't believe could exist. If you didn't think there was a possibility there was a God, you wouldn't be out in front of the cameras trying to disprove there is a God. The reason you're doing that is you do believe that there is the possibility there is a God, but in your own wise eyes, you have denied that. Okay? So don't ever let an atheist tell you how dumb you are. Just shoot back to him, well, you obviously believe in a God. And then watch him melt down under, your, under the spiritual wisdom of God. Look, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What kind of wisdom? That spiritual wisdom we're talking about. The way to God. The religious works of man. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It seems wise to the world to work their way to God, to be good enough for God to accept them, to invent a system in which they are in control and have their hands on the wheel. That seems wise. It seems foolish to them to admit, I have no control. God has all control. And if He doesn't save me, I'm unsavable. It seems foolish. And God chose through that foolishness to make their wisdom folly. Foolishness. So, for the Jews, they demand a sign. And the Greeks, they want wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He lavished on you wisdom and insight. Do you see it? He lavished on you Christ. And if He lavished on you Christ, He lavished on you spiritual wisdom. And then we're going to skip down. And we want to look at chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to discern them, understand them, have insight where they are concerned, because they are spiritually appraised. God lavished on us wisdom and understanding spiritually so that we could comprehend the gospel. If he hadn't, we couldn't understand it. It's not a question of IQ. Aren't you glad God didn't base this thing on IQ? Some of us would not get in. But God didn't base it on how smart you are. God based it on His grace. God based it on His ability to give you a gift that is over and exceeding abundant. And that gift is the wisdom to see Christ for who He is and the insight and understanding to apply the gospel, to believe, to hold to the gospel. And so he says, the spiritual person judges all things. The spiritual person judges because of his understanding all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. 
Listen, when the world refutes the wisdom of God, they only judge themselves, not us. That's what Paul's saying. When Paul went to Athens and he stood in the middle of the greatest philosophers of his day and he reasoned with them on Acts, in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, day after day after day, he confounded their wisdom. And when they mocked him in disbelief, they were showing themselves to be fools. And he was being attested before the people as wise. And God was being glorified and people were being saved. So listen, as an application of this wisdom and understanding, the application is not to be prideful. How can you take pride in how smart you are spiritually when you're not the reason you understand it in the first place? Instead, take pride in God and glorify and magnify God. You say, how can a system that, 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 that champions election and predestination not lead to pride? Because when you correctly understand that God is all in all, then you realize you are not the linchpin. You are not the, the straw which broke the camel's back. You are not the pebble which came out of the dam and it broke forth. God did it. Arminianism. I'm going to say it. Arminianism, the belief in the free will of man, is the most prideful system in all the world. Because they... They fashion themselves to be smart enough to choose God. And they are not, and neither are we. His grace lavished on us, poured out in abundance to overflowing the ability to understand and apply the gospel in my heart, in my life, and for His glory. And so we see the first thing here is that He has given us wisdom which comes from Him. He has lavished it on us. He has given it abundantly. He has blessed us with grace, which comes in the form of wisdom and understanding in verse 8. And then we see, secondly, that we have been blessed with the revelation of the mystery of the will of God. God has revealed the mystery of His will to us. By the way, the mystery is no longer a mystery. You hear somebody talking about, well, it's just mysterious. No, it's not. It's Fully explained. Read it. Listen, it doesn't take intelligence. It doesn't take high IQ. It doesn't take a want to or a desire. It takes a holy God who gives lavishly to these people who He has chosen before the foundation of the world for His own glory. The ability to understand and apply the gospel. That's what it takes. And when they do, they understand the mystery of the will of God. Now, what is this mystery? God has methodically, continuously, purposefully revealed the future fact of the glory of redemption to His people. He's done it methodically. He's done it intentionally. He's done it continuously. He's done it progressively. All these leads. He has done it through time. He has revealed to us. The mystery which we are talking about is, is the mystery which is talked of in the Old Testament. It is not the Greek idea of mystery which has to do with haziness and uncertainty and, the, and, and facts which have not yet uh, come to be fact. We're not talking about that kind of mystery. This is not super sleuths going around collecting clues in a mystery novel. That's not what this is. The mystery of God has been revealed to us in the Old Testament partially 
And the thousand watt light bulb shot off in Bethlehem. The moon was up. And in Bethlehem, the sun rose. The moon was still shining in John the Baptist. And then, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sun came up. I must decrease. He must increase. That's what John's talking about. The mystery which I've been preaching to you about the the belief in the redemption of God's people through God Himself has now been revealed. John the Baptist said it best. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The mystery has showed up. It's here. The one who the prophets prophesied about for thousands of years has now taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And He is the fullness of the glory of God. He is full of grace and truth. That's Him. It's Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses this word. Mysterion is the word from the original language. And it's used 27 times in the New Testament. Get this. Paul uses it 21 of those 27 times. Why would Paul use this term more than anyone else? Because... He says, it was my role as an apostle to reveal to you the mystery of God's will, the mystery of God's will to the Gentiles first and then the Jews. The mystery of God's will came to the Gentiles in large part and is still coming to the Gentiles in large part, in large measure. The Jews still sit under a cloak of darkness for the most part, not completely, but for the most part. But don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. This is how God is saving all of His people. This is how God is saving all of His people. We can safely say that this is the core of Paul's message. This is the center of what he wanted to preach. This is Christ and Him crucified. This is the mystery of the Old Testament revealed in the New. Paul's God-given role as an apostle is to reveal the mystery of the will of God to the Gentiles and also to the Jews. He never forsook the, the teaching of this to the Jews. But they forsook the teaching. The Gentiles grabbed it up. What is this mystery then? Well, let's talk about it. The broadest sense in which we understand the mystery of God is that God, it's in verse 10, God will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the broad umbrella of the mystery of God's will. All things summed up in Christ. That's the mystery. Okay? It's not hard to understand, is it? Was that difficult? That was easy. But now we get into the particulars. God is revealing through Paul's ministry that there there, there are uh, this broad thing, all things in Christ summed up, in two ways. Two subcategories. Okay? One, number one subcategory, is that God is reconciling all things in the universe, to Himself in Christ. Now let's look at Colossians. Hold your passage there in Ephesians and turn to Colossians. This is a companion letter. This is Paul's writing to the church at Colossus, which was a circular letter, and it is the companion. I believe the men who carried Ephesians carried the letter to the Colossians. The same men carried it. And I believe these two letters circulated among all the churches in Asia Minor. And so this is what they would have read in Colossians concerning the mystery of God's will. Look what it says for us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Starting in verse 20. And you, oh, excuse me, verse 24. Now, 
I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. He's going to make the Word of God fully known. Now back up with me in verse 15 of that same chapter. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things in the universe were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, which is the church. So we have here the two subcategories. All things being summed up in the universe under Christ and the church. This is the two subcategories of what it means that all things will be united under Christ. The cosmos and the church. Two C's. Cosmos and church. Universe and church. And so now it's my responsibility to kind of further dig this so we're not confused at all. If we look at a couple of the companion passages, I think it will help. Look at Colossians, that Colossians passage verses 24 through 29, and let's focus in, let's focus in on verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now it is revealed to His saints. The mystery is revealed to His saints. You see that? To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentile are the riches of the glory of the mystery. There it is again. The mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The broad category, all things are being summed up in Christ. That's the, what Paul says right here in Colossians, verse 1. The, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is another broad way of saying the mystery of God is Christ being over all things. All things. And so we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, another passage which is filled with this word mystery. 15 verse 20. <clears throat> but, as, but in fact, God, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also, Christ, uh, also in Christ shall all be made alive. So everybody under Adam died, and everybody under, who is under Christ lives, is resurrected. But each in his own order. Listen, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. He's reigning now until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. All things are summarized into Christ. All things are placed under His rule. That's what the Bible says. But when it says all things are in subject, it is plain that it is accepted the one who put things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will be subjected to God who put all things in subjection under Christ that God may be all in all. So all things are summed up in Christ and presented back to God. And God is all in all. God is glorified above all things, all creatures. Look at the end of that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. 
if we look there. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory, the mystery is revealed. Where is it revealed? In Christ. All things under Christ in subjection to Him. Now, I will say this. So much confusion has started to occur in our day surrounding this mystery. Mainly because of the rise of what I call hyper-dispensationalism. Okay? And that's a big word. We won't get into all of that. But when that began to occur, the focus shifted in that way of thinking, in that group, to to an ethnic group of people and away from Christ. And the reaction, so they began to write a ton of stuff. You'll get commentaries on the passage I'm preaching about mystery. You're going to get a ton of stuff on how God was saving Israel. Israel rejected God. Then there was this parentheses that occurred. It's called the church age. Okay? And they write all in detail about it. The problem is it's not based on Scripture. It's the invention of men. I could take you through the detailed history of that at some point. Not today. But this is what I'm saying. The, the biblical side began to shoot back at that. And so all the commentary for the last hundred years has almost centered on that debate. And what I want to do today is say, wherever you stand on the end times, whatever you believe about how Christ is coming and what He's going to do when He comes and then what's going to happen after that, we must all agree on this point, that Christ will reign over all things. Everything will be summed up in Him. And it is a process which is happening even now. I think everyone would agree with that. There's no one who would debate that who studies the Scripture seriously. All things. So, I'm not trying to tell you your end time view doesn't matter. I'm telling you that doesn't really enter into what you believe about the mystery. The mystery is Christ revealed. That's the mystery. He is the hope of glory. He is the one who is reconciling the universe and saving the church. Christ is the content of the mystery of God's will. Christ is. Christ is. And so let me say a few things about the mystery and you jot these down. God, before the creation, made a covenant with the members of the Trinity. That covenant is the covenant of redemption. Before God did anything in creation, God planned to redeem the saved. Everything God has done in creation is so that He might save a people. God did this prior to the creation. Secondly, God created all things so that the covenant of redemption will be fulfilled. His purpose in creation is His glory. Second to that is that the redeemed are saved. You say, you say He created this whole universe 
the vast expanses that exist for the church? Yes. For His glory and for His people, He has done all things. Second point. Third point about the mystery. God purposefully revealed the plan of redemption progressively throughout the ages. God did not tell Adam everything that He has told us. But He told Adam all that was necessary for Adam to be saved. We know more than Abraham knew in detail. But we know nothing more than Abraham in concept. Okay? Abraham knew all of the gospel in concept, but he had not seen it vividly displayed, portrayed in his lifetime. He didn't see it. He wanted to see it. He longed to see it. His eyes were focused on it, heavenly speaking, spiritually speaking, but he did not receive the promise in his day. Okay? Abraham, in other words, lived in the shadows of the covenant. The shadows, as Hebrews calls them. And that was enough. How was Abraham saved, you might ask? By faith alone. In, in Christ alone. By grace alone. For God's glory alone. And it was revealed to him through the spoken Word of God, which in his day was the Scripture alone. He was saved just like we're saved. No different. But he did not have the full details that we have. Okay? And so God gave Adam a piece. He gave it further in Abraham. He gave it further in Moses. He gave it further in, revealed in David. You get the point. And then the prophets. And then, bang, light shone on the darkness. And the darkness could not extinguish it. That light is Jesus Christ. And so in the Gospels, it became brighter. But even the Gospels don't contain the fullness of the mystery the way the latter writings do. The letters. The full explanation was not for them. They saw Him with their eyes. They understood His teachings as best they could through the Spirit. But then Paul and the church expounded on that for us through the writings. And now we end the peak of the, of the, of the, of the pinnacle of the revelation of this mystery is revelation. That's why God says, Blessed is he who reads the words of this book. Because it is the pinnacle of the revelation. It is the end of the, it is the capstone of revelation. Not because of some other reason that you might have does God want you to read revelation. Not so you can come up with all kinds of theories about helicopters and, and massive armies and what nations are involved. He wants you to read the revelation not for the conspiracy theories which so many pump from pulpits today. He wants you to read Revelation because it is the pinnacle, it is the finality of the revelation of the will of God, the mystery which is Christ. Okay? So we see that. Third, a fourth, God at the perfect time and in the perfect way revealed the mystery of His redemptive will in Christ. Don't ever question God's wisdom in revealing His Son. Some people say, well, why was he born in Israel? Why was he born in Bethlehem? Why not Jerusalem? Why not Rome? Because God didn't want him to be born there. God knew the perfect place for him to be born. Why was he born way back then? Why not now when mass communication occurred? Because mass communication occurred then also. There was one language in the civilized world at that time. You can't say that now. 
God chose the perfect time. Pax Romana had occurred. The roads of the Roman Empire connected the empire and the language of the Roman Empire connected the people. And so the message of God moved unencumbered from one society to another society to another. Don't ever question God's wisdom. And I'll tell you, all those things happened so his son would be born at the perfect time. Rome rose to power so God could have his son born in Bethlehem. And the message of the cross carried to the ends of the empire. God's plan is magnificent. Fifth, God has placed everything under his son's rule. That is today. You heard it in 1 Corinthians 15. Everything is under the rule of Christ. He is reigning now. It is under his feet. And it is being progressively further consummated even as we speak. His kingdom knows no end. His church is spreading to the ends of the earth. The fame of His name is not contained to one nation any longer, but is across the whole earth. The church cannot be defeated. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It is pervasive in the cultures of the world. Listen, we often moan about the good old days. We live in the good old days. Say, oh no, preacher, yes. You know why we live in the good old days? More people today hear the gospel on a weekly basis than at any time in the history of the world. The church exists on every continent in some form or fashion. And unreached nations, their languages are being decoded more and more and more rapidly. And the gospel is infiltrating those nations more and more and more rapidly. Not say it's the good old days today because the name of Christ is being spread. Not because we live in some crime-free society where we can leave our doors unlocked. If... If it takes crime and it takes deep sin that God's name might be glorified, so be it. We've got it backwards. We believe the good old days were the good old days because they were easy for us. It might be time for us to realize the good old days are when Christ's name is magnified at whatever cost. That's what we need is to refocus on what is the good. What is the great? God, finally, in the end, will receive the kingdom back from His Son. And everything will be to God, all in all. So finally in this passage, after seeing the mystery of the will, we see, we know that Christ is the fulfillment of God's purpose. And He is the content of the mystery of God's will. Look at 9c. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says in various ways at various times God spoke to our fathers through the prophets but in these last days God has spoken to us through His Son. He also, the writer writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17 through 21. Verses 17 through 21 a magnificent passage on Revelation. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown. The plan of redemption was foreknown. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake who through Him are believers in God. And so we see that we live in the good old days. 
We live where the promise of God has been revealed in the Son of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, one of my favorite passages in 2 Corinthians, we find verse 17 through 20, Paul writing, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our truth, our amen to God for His glory. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the plan of God. Jesus Christ contains all the glories which He has now bestowed on us as His children. Jesus Christ is all in all. All things are being summed up in Him. And so we might rightly say with the Gospel writer, Christ is the treasure above all treasures. When I think about how twisted we have made the gospel in our churches today. My heart is grieved because the gospel has become a plan by which you get out of jail free. And it has become a plan centered on men. And in the Bible, there's nothing further from the truth. The gospel is Christ. I want to say it plainly. If you came to Jesus to get out of hell, only. If you came to Jesus to get into heaven, only. If you would be satisfied in heaven without Christ. J.C. Ryle asked it this way. I'm going to ask you his question. It's not mine. J.C. Ryle asked, If a man or woman might find contentment in heaven with all of their relatives and all of the buffet food of heaven, and all the relaxation, and all the pleasures, and all the glories, if a man might find contentment there without Christ, then he knows not the gospel. Because Christ is the gospel. Listen, if you want it out of hell and into heaven, if you're in love with the idea of being eternal, and living in the new heaven and the new earth, if you want your mansion and you want your streets paved with gold, you want to meet your papa and you want to go back and be with your mama, you're not believing the gospel. Because I'll flip the question for you. Because I think we're desynthesized. We automatically say, oh, yeah, I'm in with that. Yeah, Jesus, because we still think I get all that other stuff too. So I'm going to ask you this. If it were revealed today, that there was nothing in eternity but Christ. Would you want eternity? There are no mansions. There are no family members. There are no pleasures outside of Christ. Just Christ. That's all there is. Is it enough? If not, you're not believing the gospel. Why can I say that so boldly? Because Jesus said... The gospel of the kingdom is like this. A man was traveling and he found a treasure. And finding the treasure, he buried it in a field and he sold everything he had and bought the field. 
Jesus is that treasure. And if you're holding on to anything except Him, you are not holding on to Him. You cannot hold on to these things in one hand and Christ with the other. You will hold on to Christ with both hands of faith or you will not hold on. I am not calling anyone ever to come because of the fancies of eternity. Or be, I'm not calling you only to avoid the flame of hell. I'm calling you to the person of Jesus Christ who Himself is the treasure. He said it another way. A jeweler about his business at his bench, cleaning and purifying and putting rings together and tokens, found a pearl. And seeing this pearl, he sold his business and all he had to have the pearl. Jesus is the pearl. Have you sold everything you have so you might have him? I might say it like this. There were, there were two friends traveling. And they were talking about the Old Testament. And they were saddened in their heart because the man they thought was the fulfillment of those scriptures was now dead. And then on their journey, he was with them. They didn't recognize him. And he asked, what are you troubled by? Have you not heard? Have you not been in Jerusalem? Where have you been? Jesus has been killed. And we thought he was the promise. We thought he was the Messiah. And beginning with the law and the prophets and the writings... He told them how Scripture was fulfilled completely in Himself. All that was written was about Him. In other words, you may not can answer test questions on the Old Testament and get all the facts right, but you've got to get this one right. Christ is everything. He is everything. He is all in all. Everything is being summed up in Him. There is no further revelation. As I close today, I just want to put this before you. I know you because I know myself. And when I was 19 years old, and I was right where we are this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, I wanted another proof. If this is true, God, give me a proof. Give me a sign. Let me know. I didn't get a sign. God didn't write any words in the sky on the way to class. God didn't put any magical thing in my pathway that I might believe. What God did was put me under men who taught me God's Word consistently. Just as I've been teaching it today, and His Spirit made me alive. And so you say, there's no magic happening, Carlton. I come and, man, you're teaching and I'm learning and I'm growing. But there's no, I, need a, I need something more than that. I need... I need something to happen. I need bells and whistles to go off. I need to feel something. You may not feel anything. You may, but you may not. The question you have to answer is this. Is Christ all 
and all. Is he all you have? Is he all you want? Are you convinced he's all there ever will be that can save you? That's what you have to know. That's what you have to believe. You don't have to feel anything. You can't make yourself feel anything. You have to grasp the truth. So, how do we grasp it? The Bible says we repent of ourself and we place our faith in. We place our trust in. We hold on to. We sell all we have and buy the treasure. We sell all. Poker analogy. My grandmother's here. I hate to admit. I know about poker. It's all chips to the center. You get it? If you're here today and you've been in church all your life and you've been withholding parts of yourself and saying, I'm just not 100% sure, I'm like 90% sure, I'm going to hold this in reserve, what I'm telling you is you're not in Christ at all. 90% is not enough. What you must do is press the chips to the middle and say, I'm all in. If he ain't here and he's not real, I have no hope. Because He is the mystery of the will revealed. He is the purpose of the plan of redemption made plain. He is the Word of God in the flesh. He is the treasure of the field. He is the pearl of great value. He is all in all. In Him all things are yes and amen from God. The promises are true. And if that's not you, if you're saying, that's not me, then don't fool yourself and don't lie to us. Just be honest. And if it is... Be honest and say, I'm a fool in the world's eyes. I've pushed all in. If he isn't real, I'm doomed. I'm the most to be pitied on all the earth. Let's pray. Father.